Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey, well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. We are on to episode 127. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. Today, our guest is Mike Gavoni. He is a integrative holistic recovery coach specializing in healing not only addiction, but also trauma. He has extensive experience in helping addicts overcome trauma and free themselves from addiction, a path that he has walked personally. Mike and I have a great conversation, an in-depth conversation about trauma, early trauma, how it hides in the body, and how we can begin to process through that trauma to be able to release it and find freedom and be our authentic selves. I really enjoyed talking with Mike, and I hope you also enjoy this conversation. So let's start this interview. Welcome to the Addicted Mind Podcast. My guest today is Mike Gavoni. Mike, let's just jump right in. Awesome, Dwayne. I'm really happy to be here and thank you for bringing this work to the world. I know you've had your own personal story of suffering and transformation, and I really appreciate that and what you've done with it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, let's jump into your story. So how does this all start? Yeah, so this being the Addicted Mind podcast, I'm going to kind of keep my story a little short and brief so you guys can kind of get to the point. But as a result of, of childhood trauma, as a result of, of pain and suffering, I escaped through alcohol and drugs at an early age. So I smoked my first joint at 11. By the time I was 18 years old, I found myself uh, having an Oxycontin habit, doing over $500 a day worth the Oxycontins. And I was in a really, really tough place. Now, 
the day came where I finally had to reach out for help for the addiction. And before that, I always thought I kind of had it under control. But Oxycontins were really the first time, the first substance that really, you know, took the soul out of me. That's how I can explain it is they literally took my soul and I had to reach out for help or I chose to reach out for help. And my mom was there to assist me. She had been in and out of 12-step program, and I knew she knew a thing or two about what to do. So she brought me to uh, my doctor's office. And at 18 years old, I sat on the bench of my doctor's office next to a baby scale. It was my pediatrician's office. And I was there with a, you know, strung out on opiates and he, uh, he, he examined me and he said, all right, you know, you're, you're okay. And you're good to go. And I said, well, where am I good to go, doc? He said, you're, you're ready to go to rehab. And I was like, rehab. And I was kind of like looking around the room, like me rehab. And at the time, yeah. And at the time I just wasn't ready for rehab. I just wasn't, and to be honest with you, Dwayne, my ego wouldn't allow me to go to rehab. And I say this today, but it, you know, it's not from a place that I, I hold in my heart today. But for me, people that couldn't make it or do it themselves went to rehab, right? And I was like, that's not me. And uh, I wouldn't allow myself to go to rehab. So by the grace of the great spirit or God, whatever you want to call the source, I wound up getting some pills on the street, some methadone, which I've never seen in my life until that day. And I weaned myself off of a $500 a day habit. And over 18 years later today, I never touched an Oxycontin, but I still used other substances for about two years, including alcohol. So after that, about right. two years later, yeah, I hit a depression. I uh, Once again, I needed help. I reached out to my mom and she brought me to a 12-step meeting, which is my first step or the first kind of you know exposure to the life and life and recovery, and I got sober, and I've been sober for about sixteen years, and it's been a hell of a ride since. So that's kind of my synopsis of of my story. The story of my childhood trauma really started in my mother's womb, where my my mom discovered my dad's secret, and at the time, my dad was a religious figure, and he had a lot going on. And that's where I think the trauma began, was actually in utero. So we can get into a little bit more about trauma, but that's kind of the short end of the stick with the addiction. Thank you for sharing your story, because I, I think what you describe is so common. This, this process of kind of finding something that works, that takes us out of our pain, then all the shame keeps us maybe, or the ego keeps us from getting help until we get to a point where... Maybe there are no other options. And then we finally reach out for help and start to get that support. And so I think your story is is common in that way. And I think it's it's important to see that. The part that I would love to know and talk about too is this ego part that maybe stops us from reaching out for help and how that's related to trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Speaking from experience, you know, I, I always had a strong will inside and I always, I think from how I was brought up, I had the, let's just say the attachment patterns of doing life by myself. And I had to develop right. a, a thick skin in my household um, to 
deal with what was present. And as a man, many of us, not all of us, but many of us, including myself, developed this kind of persona as I can do it myself or, you know, I don't need help or, you know, I got this. And when it came to addiction, it was clear, it was clear I needed help with the Oxycontins. And that's when I had to kind of admit defeat. But that that ego, I think, is is a challenging thing to overcome. And on the other side of that, I think, is just the vulnerability of actually allowing someone to help us or allowing someone to help me. It was very challenging to reach out and admit defeat. And where I think that's linked to trauma is I haven't met one person who hasn't suffered from some sort of trauma that was addicted. And I worked three years in the, I supported three major hospitals for almost three years in the Boston area for the opiate epidemic. I've had my personal business since 2016. Addiction is a response to pain and trauma. And, you know, reaching out and making yourself vulnerable is challenging when you've been traumatized. You may not trust people. You may not trust the process. You, you know, when you when you first go to your first meeting or you reach out to someone, I mean, they're strangers and who knows who they are. And taking that leap is challenging. So there's many components to it, but that's kind of a little bit of my take from experience. And I think what you're saying goes back to what you mentioned a little bit earlier, which is trauma can start in utero. For sure. In fact, I if you look at the work of Stanislav Grob, who was, an, who was a well-known psychotherapist, he talked about birth was the first real trauma. We're first these aquatic beings in this beautiful environment and liquid in our mother's womb. And then all of a sudden the urge comes where the contractions and, and, and you know, we're being called and pushed through this birth canal. And now we're come out, coming out breathing air. And he talks a lot about you know, that being a real trauma too. And for sure, I totally agree with that as well as my specific situation was very traumatic for my mom. So we know that trauma can be passed down generationally, you know, through epigenetics and gene expression and so forth. And for sure, I definitely know that I was traumatized in utero and that's what led to early onset illness for me in long-term recovery and probably set me up for addiction. My sister went through the same situation, similar situation. She didn't become addicted. And she was already born when my mom experienced that first trauma. So I think there's some correlations there. Absolutely. I'm I'm right on the same page with you. Let's define that word trauma because it gets thrown around a lot. And everybody's saying trauma, trauma, trauma. But what does that actually mean when we look at the body? Yeah, so trauma is really misunderstood. There's a lot of different definitions of trauma. And if you look at the latest research from doctors like Peter Levine, Bessel van der Kolk, Bessel wrote a book, The Body Keeps the Score. Dr. Peter Levine, PhD, talks about the trauma residing in the soma, in the tissue, in the body. And if you think of it, as it relates to addiction, I mean, here we are putting something from the external world inside our body to make us feel a certain way. Now, if we get really curious about that, then 
what do we need to change inside our body? Well, we have to change the way we feel. We have to, whatever the addiction does for you, you know, uppers, downers, whatever it may be, it's some sort of attempt to regulate this nervous system and feel comfortable in your own skin. Now, that may be unconscious to you. You might just be having a good time early on in your you know, teenage years, and then it just develops into a full-blown habit, whatever the case may be. But the trauma resides in the tissues, in the body, in the viscera. So the healing from that, which is, this is my big message, is you can be in long-term recovery and still be suffering from the symptoms of trauma. Because if you don't discharge the energy that's tied to the story or the traumatic events or what you lived through, i.e. what we're running from when it comes to addiction, then you still may be suffering from what I like to say, the, the, the symptoms. And you said earlier that this could almost be unconscious, unawareness, like it's in your body, but you don't actually totally fully know it's there, if that makes sense. Can we talk about that? Because I think that's a common thing that happens for a lot of people in addiction. They, they have trauma, but they don't even know that they have trauma, which sounds really weird. How do you have trauma and not know that you have trauma? But yeah, this, is, exactly. this is how trauma works. Yeah. Yeah, so trauma resides in the subcortical limbic parts of the brain, which is not, you know, not your prefrontal cortex and, and the higher cortical regions. In fact, the symptoms, you know, bipolar, anxiety, you know, a lot of the, the diagnosis in the DSM-5, those are living on in, in a fight or flight response or a shutdown response, right? So if you look at the work of Stephen, Dr. Stephen Porges in the polyvagal theory, you know, sympathetic arousal happens, you know, when you're trying to fight or flight from something. And, you know, that might be anxiety that might, you know, and then you, if you can't flee from a mammalian perspective, like, for example, when we're on a safari and we're getting attacked by a predator, we drop down on what's called dorsovagal response, which is shut down, right? You can't see me. And we do that so we wouldn't, we wouldn't feel getting eaten by predators. And, you know, many of us can still be bouncing in between these parts of our nervous system unconsciously just because that's the template, that's the framework, that's the program that we've been in for so long. Some of us have been frozen for so long and we don't even know that. And you might be like, oh, well, what's frozen? Well, we can be, you can feel that stuckness. We can, we cannot feel alive. We cannot be able to access the here and the now, right? We, we can still be suffering from all these symptoms, of the trauma that's that's stored in in the body and and when we're unconscious of it you know it's because it's it's the program and in fact many of us have traumas that we've suppressed and repressed so much that it's below it's below consciousness and that's interesting because some people have flashbacks or memories or things or if they do a certain specific therapy like psychedelic assisted psychotherapy these things are released from the unconscious and and this is what's so important because what's in the subconscious i.e where trauma is stored is what's driving our life right Carl Jung says you know we don't become enlightened by imagining images of light but by only making the darkness conscious 
And that's the work of healing is kind of pulling that from the unconscious and processing the energy or trauma that's tied to it so it can be discharged from the body. So my question is, why is it so hard? Like you're sitting on that doctor's table, right? And the doctor's like, you need help. And you're like, no way, I'll do it myself. I'm not going to get help for that. I'm, I, I'll just do it, which I think is such a common refrain for people who are in addiction. So yeah, once again, like, why is that so hard to do? Like, why is it so hard to visit this trauma or heal this trauma? Well, as Joseph Campbell says, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek. I love Joseph Campbell. That's awesome. Yeah. When we go back and we heal some of these deep wounds, it can feel like the original event. It can feel like death. It can feel like we're never going to make it out of this. And that's when, that's why we need support. And um, that's why I think many of us don't want to go there. And a lot of people just kind of skim along the surface in recovery, even in long-term recovery, without ever looking at or doing their deep work, but yet they're still suffering. So as I just said, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek. And for me, it was nine years into recovery until it it took me a chronic illness for me to have my awakening and for me to actually face the pain and come home to my body. And that was almost 10 years into recovery. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think sometimes I liken that going into that cave of darkness is really terrifying. It can feel like life or death, but at the same time, a little unconscious, so you don't realize it feels like life or death, but it truly is the the body saying, we might get eaten here or die or and some of this what you said earlier going back to early pre-verbal we may not have the language to even describe it or be able to connect cognitively to it but it's a felt sense in the body and and our body says don't go there absolutely that's i'm glad you brought that up that felt sense and that's what we have to begin to lean into is what's here into the body right? What's showing up, the sensations, the feelings, right? And begin to befriend those and allow that energy to pass through us. Because at the end of the day, that's what we're all running from when it comes to addiction and or running from in long-term recovery with behaviors that still aren't serving you. Right. And we get stuck there. And when you're in that pain, you can't live in that pain all the time. So you have to find something. Oh, yeah. Sex, shopping, chasing partners, whatever it may be. Food. And I, food. And I, I share that because I, I did that for years. And I never, know, I never knew I was suffering from unprocessed, unhealed trauma. And, and it took the universe to conspire for my awakening, for me to have, uh, I had a mystical experience, Dwayne, that led to a profound healing. And that's what led me on the journey of what I do today. So tell me about that. Tell me about that experience that really started to shift your body. Yes. So my experience, it was a profound, profound experience. And what happened was I developed 
irritable bowel disease about five years into recovery after buying my first home and renovating it and staying up all hours of the night, trying to paint it and, you know, ripping out counters, tops and all that stuff. And I got sick and I went to the doctors and he diagnosed me after a colonoscopy with universalis ulcerative colitis. My whole colon was ulcerated. Fast forward, I took all the medications, the prednisones, anti-inflammatories, kept on with my business. I traveled the world or, or Central South America for about nine months, grabbed a backpack. I wound up getting a parasite and it tripped off the ulcerative colitis again after I had been in remission for a year. I came back to the States. I was sicker than ever. was seeing the best GI doctors in the world at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And they didn't know what to do with me at the end. At the end, I was on an immunologic drug that was suppressing my immune system so it wouldn't attack my colon. And lo and behold, that drug started to shut down my liver. So here I am, I'm five, I'm about seven years into recovery at this point. I have two organs on the table. They're like, you can remove your colon possibly. And if you don't take care of this liver issue, you may need a liver transplant in eight years. So coupled with the IBD, irritable bowel disease, my body developed multiple chemical sensitivity. Now, this is very important because I, I'll share the in-depth, my kind of hypothesis on all this is if we know the work of Dr. Faletti with adverse childhood experiences, we know that adverse childhood experiences set us up for addiction and early onset disease. It's in the literature. If you want to do a research, yes, yes. the ACE study. Yeah, that was an incredibly great study that really, really just showed beyond a shadow of a doubt how these early childhood events can affect us on multiple levels. Absolutely. And I'll share one brief stat with you. If you take the ACE score, it's a question of 10 questions. And depending upon how many you say yes to, per se, you have an ACE score. Say you say yes to three, I have an ACE score of three. Yes to six, I have an ACE score of six. So those with an ACE score of six or more compared to those with zero have a 4,600 times chance of using intravenous drugs or drugs intravenously. That's an amazing stat, right? So it's incredible. Incredible. So I was suffering from adverse childhood experiences, i.e. trauma, well into my you know, fifth, sixth, seventh year of recovery, and I developed illness. So here I am still trying to grab the bull by the horns and run away from myself. I'm in the gym twice a day. I'm trying to work through this and all this stuff. And I was only getting sicker and sicker. And at the end, I had two organs on the table. And I, I looked at these guys in the white coat and I said, I got to go. And I left mainstream medicine. That was seven years ago. Today I have my colon. Today I have my liver. Now, I'm not anti-Western medicine. It just didn't work for me. So at the, end right. of that, yeah, at the end of that situation, I left mainstream medicine. And the multiple chemical sensitivity is interesting. And, and why I share this in depth is because I think it has everything to do with trauma. Now, when you have trauma, your fight or flight mechanisms in your brain, the amygdala, can be sensitized. And, if, you know, for example, you may be prone to 
have a threat response or a style response, or you may be looking, you know, you may be skeptical or suspect of people and not know why. Well, maybe you grew up in an environment that you couldn't trust your, you know, family or community or whatever the case may be. And I had an overactive amygdala. Now, my immune system was perked up because of the IBD. And now when I smell chemicals going up through the olfactory nerve directly to the amygdala and the chemicals are producing a fight or flight response that was unbearable. Now, when I say unbearable, right. yeah. yeah, I mean, I was so painful because I was the, the, the fight or flight response was stuck on and it was the worst anxiety I've ever had. And I wanted to, I was contemplating suicide. So rather than taking my own life, I decided to turn my attention inward and I started to practice meditation. Now, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to sit for 10 minutes and just kind of see what this is like. I was practicing presence because where I was going in my mind with the physiological situation and the emotional suffering was torture. So I had to bring my mind and body to the present moment, first to settle my autonomic nervous system, and then to ground my mind in the present moment. But one beautiful thing that happened was, I don't know if you guys have ever read The Power of Now with Eckhart Tolle. I had a the similar... Another great book. Beautiful. And I had the same experience as he did when consciousness split off from itself, I should say. And I began to... The, the knower, the witness started to be cultivated. Now, I had left my, my company job. I was in the woods because the outside environment was too stimulating for me. And I was practicing stillness. I was meditating. I was reflecting. I was, I was away from all of the other stimuluses, right? I left my job. I left some of my friends. I completely went inward. And in the process... I had a mystical experience. And what I mean by that is it's beyond conceptualization. It was a profound spiritual experience that really reorchestrated and changed everything within me, I believe, to the cellular level. And my body began to heal. But first, I had to engage in the shift of my own consciousness, which is what we need to do here in the, with addiction. And as Gabo Mate says, the cure to addiction is consciousness. Consciousness is freedom. Yes, definitely. It is like an experience to, I think, like you said, you, you can't put words to it because it is this visceral experience of, of a shift that as we, I guess, nurture the impartial observer, if we, we look at like dialectical behavior therapy and be able to see ourselves beyond ourselves. That sounds so weird, but I, I don't know how else to describe it because I understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. When you have deep trauma and you shift that, there is that kind of shift in consciousness. For sure. And, and Peter Levine's work, is he talks about how trauma is a gateway to profound shifts in consciousness. Or my mentor, would, he was a naturopathic doctor. He was teaching people that Mindfulness and consciousness has the ability to heal your body. Now, why is that? Well, let's say 
you're suffering from the repetition compulsion of, of, of stress every day, and it causes you to get an ulcer in your belly. But then you begin to cultivate presence and mindfulness to the stress. Now you have a choice on how you respond. Before you know it, you're in the relaxation response because you're now driving the bus and calming your body down, okay, by breathing. Then the ulcers get better. Then you begin to heal. So shifting our consciousness is so very important. And, and I, I believe the the body wants us to heal in, in its state of relaxation doesn't seem like the right word to use, but in, in that state of calmness, the body wants to repair itself. It wants to heal. It wants to move forward and grow. Absolutely. And that's the, that's the beauty of some of the work I do. I'm in a somatic experiencing uh, training with, you know, from the work with Peter Levine. And that work specifically allows the, the, the person in need, when you're guiding them through the somatic experience, and allowing them to create, you know, time. So just giving themselves some time, giving themselves some space and support. The nervous system naturally knows how to move through the cycle and discharge the trauma. In fact, domestic animals and humans are really the ones that get traumatized. Animals in the wild rarely get traumatized because they naturally know how to discharge the energy. Now, when you might be thinking, well, how do animals in the wild get traumatized? Well, when a wolf is chasing a bison and the bison's fleeing for its life, you bet he's experiencing a traumatic event right there. He's, it's life right. or death. And if he escapes... You bet that energy is still in his nervous system and he has to discharge that in a way so he's not worried about all the other wolves for the rest of his life. Now, animals, deers aren't worried about coyotes when, when they run from one and they get away. They don't sit there and think about that coyote all the time. But us humans will think about that event that happened to us 10 years ago or how we you know, were hurt or whatever the case may be and we'll continue that that cycle reinforcing that energy in the body. So when we do these processes of going to the body with healing trauma, the body, like you said, Dwayne, innately knows how to process and discharge. Absolutely. The other question I want to ask is, as we kind of heal this trauma and we move through life and we're doing some of this somatic work, is there a point where we're done or is this something that we keep doing? To be honest with you, I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> and, and why I say that is because the more and more I journey into the deep unconscious for me, the more it's re more things are revealed. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know if we're ever really done per se. That's kind of where I'm at as well, because as, as I've done this work, and a lot of this comes from my own personal experience with my own traumas through, through my life, is that I, I find that sometimes some of these traumas still, as I do some somatic work, like somatic experiencing work or somatic therapy, some of these older traumas may kind of come up in a new way. They seem to be a little more subtle. They're not quite as powerful, but it's 
interesting that some of them still show up even 10 years later. Yeah, for sure. I can totally relate to that. And I think there is a point where you begin to, let's just say, remove some of the boulders out of your nervous system. And when you remove some of the boulders out of your nervous system and you have the capacity and inner sense of agency and resiliency, you can begin to hold other things that show up in in a way where they're just kind of flowing through you. But in the beginning, for me, my doors had to get blown off. So I, I, I had to really move through those big boulders, those big chunks. And it opened me up to once again develop that awareness that could hold experience in the present moment. And like you said, as I do more work now, there's this inner capacity for me to be with what is. And it, that even initiates the more of more of the healing along along my journey. So I I, I really agree with you, Dwayne. Yeah, you you start to build that resiliency. It can feel in the beginning of this journey really overwhelming. It's like all the trauma just wants to get out, or it feels like if it does get out, it's going to blow you up. Yeah, and you're not going to be able to survive it. But as you build, I think what you said, as you build resilience some of this becomes easier and you jump into it faster. It's not quite as frightening. I know for me, when stress has come up, because life is hard, you know, we got COVID and there's all kind of stresses there and all kind of things come up, but we're able to jump in faster, quicker and move through it smoother. Yeah, I agree. And, and if we have support in the, that process, I mean, it's it's that's essential, really, because trauma happens because of lack of support. So when we're in, you know, recovery or whatever the case may be, this message is applicable to people that aren't as well. But we need support and someone to help navigate us and 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 help us navigate on the journey. And and it gets yeah, it gets easier and easier and easier to the point where like sharing my deep story of trauma is something I've done, right? Um, yeah. Stepping into my work and my purpose is is something I've done. You know, before my trauma healing, I, this was impossible, right? To be seen and heard and was extremely vulnerable. So, in fact, one of my great mentors says that, you know, your trauma is a prerequisite to your purpose. And we have to begin to do this work. And this work is what, what keeps us back from living our authentic life. Because when you look at it, when you're stuck in survival mode because of trauma, once again, me and Dwayne are saying you may not even know it's survival mode because it's something you've been doing your whole life. When you're stuck right. in survival mode, you don't have access to your creativity. You don't have access to the full potential of who you are. In fact, you don't have access or difficult. It's challenging to have access to the higher cortical levels of, of thought and processing, hence executive function decision-making, social engagement. This is your, your seat of consciousness, your prefrontal cortex. And in fact, you know, I always say it's no wonder why people in addiction isolate. They don't have access to their social engagement system. We are social primates. We are built for connection. We are built for touch. How many of us in recovery still suffer from the inability to have intimate relationships or long-lasting relationships? 
If so, this could be a result of unhealed trauma. Absolutely. So let's jump into one more question because we're kind of coming up on our time. Let's talk about the role of others in the process of healing yourself. What I mean by that is in the nervous system, you know, as we're moving through this trauma, often we need other people to help us walk through that trauma. I have a saying that we heal through the eyes of others, right? When when they can witness our trauma or see our trauma or like you said, an example of doing somatic therapy, there's someone with you that walks you through a little bit of that process, can help you through that process. I know some of it we have to do by ourselves, but sometimes there's other people involved in that. Uh, yes, great point. And there's a quote, I don't know where it came from, but it says, you know, we're born in a relationship, we're wound, we get wounded in relationship, and we heal in relationship. So the first step to really healing trauma is to develop a relationship of safety and trust with someone. If you can't trust them, if they don't feel safe to you, then it's going to be very challenging, near impossible to actually heal with them. So finding someone you trust, finding someone you feel safe with, this could be a therapist, a coach, a shaman, a mentor, um, and ideally someone that has done their own work. Because once again, um, you can only bring people to the level that we have gone ourselves. So the first step with establishing that safety and trust is what we're doing in that moment is we're, we're, we're developing a skill called co-regulation. So my nervous system is co-regulating with their nervous system. And we're, we're, our nervous systems are talking to each other in the sense of, of um, I'm assisting that person to feel safe, feel grounded, be here, right? Create, create the ability to orientate and cultivate the, the space to be present. And as you begin this work with other people or another person and co-regulation begins to happen, that person, if they're skilled and they have some info to share with their client or patient is, you know, you can really help them develop the skills of self-regulation. So that's my main goal with, with people in the early stages of working with them is co-regulation and also help them to develop self-regulation, which is their ability to regulate their own nervous system in the moment, you know, from a sense of threat or, or whatever the case may be, that they're able to get back in the window of tolerance, per se, where they're not shot out of it, you know, in anxiety or panic or sympathetic or not shut down and disconnected, maybe that dorsal vagal. So, yes, healing with another person is supportive on your journey. Absolutely. And, and I think that sometimes someone else, if you're in trauma, can move your system down a little bit enough so that you can begin to have the relationship with the self to help the self self-heal. So, wow, Mike, I just want to say this has been a great conversation. I have really enjoyed it. One thing I like to do at the end is ask this question. If someone's listening to this podcast and maybe they're struggling with trauma or addiction, what would be the one thing you'd wanna tell them? What would be the one thing you'd wanna say? The one thing I would wanna say is that whatever you're experiencing in this moment of suffering or pain, 
will change. It will move through you if you can allow it because there's there's nothing fixed in this reality. Everything is in flux, in motion. And I would hate to see you suffer because of an experience or a situation that will eventually change. So holding the teaching in your mind of impermanence, that whatever you're going through right now has the ability to change and transform. So don't hold on too tightly. Awesome. Thank you so much. If people want to find you, they want to get a hold of you, they have more questions, how, how can they find you? You can find me on social media at Mike Gavoni, M-I-K-E-G-O-V as in Victor, O-N as in Nancy, I. I have a program, 101 coaching called Healing Beyond Recovery, and you can find me at MikeGavoni.com. Awesome. And I will link all of that in the show notes at TheAddictedMind.com. Mike, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom. Yeah, Dwayne, thanks for having me. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. You can find all the show notes at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 127. And if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please think about writing a review. That really does help the podcast get a lot of exposure and helps people find the podcast. If you know someone who might benefit from the podcast, please share it with them or share it with a friend. Also, you can continue the conversation online on Facebook. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation there. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.